Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Uh, well, hello, Matthew. It's been a while. <laughs> Hi, Stuart. How's your uh, year? We have not recorded together in almost a month. Yeah, it's we are, th- yeah. we are. This is being released in 2018, and it is the first day of 2018. I was purposefully avoiding all of your phone calls and text messages, <laughs> and I think you actually sent me some mail too. You asked for my address. It's kind of strange. Yeah, um, it was probably a family Christmas card, but anyway, we should introduce the show. It's an oh, in- This is an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with several co-hosts. I'll let them introduce themselves. Yeah, I'm here with uh, he, Dr. Paul Williams is out there somewhere. This is Dr. Stuart Brigham, trying to be weird. <laughs> yeah, mission accomplished, buddy. <laughs> That's Paul. And with us tonight, our correspondent, Jordana Kazupski. She is a newly minted adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. Uh, she was previously a nurse in an acute care institution where she created an innovative, nationally recognized continuing education program for nurses working on the floors and was recognized as Nurse of the Year. And uh, that's that's part of what uh, got her hired with the Curbsiders, which is a very prestigious position. Isn't that right, Jordy? Yeah, very. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Did you want to give the audience like a quick one-liner about yourself? Oh, man, I thought that was it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I am a 27-year-old um, new nurse practitioner living in New York, and I am a diehard dog mom hiking enthusiast and trying to transplant to a different city because none of those equate to living in New York City. That was a great one-liner, but I got really excited because I thought you were going to start talking about Die Hard, but then you uh, yeah. Yeah, you mm. took a left turn there. I'm yeah. sorry. Die Hard's, Die Hard's my favorite Christmas movie. Uh, all right, Die Hard I wish I could relate, but I'm not a movie person. <laughs> I, I didn't realize Die Hard was a Christmas movie. Paul? It's... it's- Absolutely a Christmas movie. Ho, ho, ho. Now I have a machine gun. I mean, <laughs> that sounds like Christmas right. here. Very happy. Yeah. Well, let's introduce the show. Our guest on this show Did is. Did you want to know about any listener feedback? Or are we just oh, skipping yeah. that? Yeah, Stuart. Yeah, I've it... got some wonderful listener feedback. It's from Captremo. In fact, <laughs> I, I love highlighting bad listener feedback. Because it, it just it just fills my dark soul. It says, uh, on average, the first 20 minutes, so just full disclaimer, it says two stars. On average, the first 20 minutes of each podcast is small talk. And what's your favorite TV show dialogue? It's frustrating. Reminds me of first-year residents who have no idea how to get to the point. After suffering through about 10 episodes, I unsubscribed and kicked them to the curb. I think they're smart people with too much to talk and not enough thought. Can he not fast forward? Uh, I would I like, like to... 10 hours of us before they're like, you know what? This isn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> they're like fingers, fingers crossed on the next one. They're going to get it right to the point. That was so mean. 
Um, Sorry, that's hilarious. I would like uh, to say uh, if there's into one, yeah. Well, if there's any more of the audience that doesn't enjoy the beginning of the show where we're kind of joking around, we do have. I do uh, take the time to put timestamps in so you can look and see like where we actually start talking about the topic at hand. But uh, I would maybe I'm a little biased, but I would recommend you listen to the first uh, ten to fifteen minutes and chill out with us. Uh, you know, for your own wellness. This takes eleven episodes <laughs> at least. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll have to run the numbers. Together after that. okay once again i'll try to introduce the show Uh, we are going to be talking about pulmonary hypertension with our wonderful guest dr john ryan md f-a-c-c f-a-h-a he is a cardiologist and internationally renowned specialist in pulmonary hypertension. He has an appointment in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Utah. He attended medical medical school at University College Cork in Ireland, where he was the top of his class. After working in internal medicine and general surgery at Cork University Hospital in Ireland, he moved to Boston University for residency and chief residency, where he was the chief medical resident uh, during my internal medicine clerkship. And uh, I happened to look him up uh, when I was researching guests for pulmonary hypertension and was delighted to see that he is running a center for pulmonary hypertension. He's the director of the University of Utah Pulmonary Hypertension Center and is also uh, a sports cardiology consultant for the United States Olympic Committee, the National Basketball Association, the Utah Jazz, and the University of Utah Utes. So Dr. Ryan is also on the editorial board of Circulation, the Canadian Journal of Cardiology. His research has been published in leading cardiovascular journals, including Circulation, Chest, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, and he is a writing member of the Chest Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension Guidelines, which are coming out in 2018. Uh, Needless to say, we are thrilled to have Dr. John Ryan on the show with us tonight, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's Try a again. breath of fresh air. Okay. <laughs> I think we're done here. Hi, Dr. Ryan. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me on. And keeping with tradition, uh, I imagine it's okay if we call you John for the recording tonight? Yeah, you can call me John or JR. Okay. Ooh, JR. <laughs> I think Stuart's <laughs> going to take the JR option. I think I will. All right. I'm going to call you John because uh, that's that's how we know each other. So, John, uh, can you give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself? So I'm a 36-year-old Irishman, uh, husband, father, heart doctor, and runner, uh, living out here in Utah. All right. And one follow-up question: What are you What are you doing for fun out there other than other than running? Oh, uh, we have uh, Real Salt Lake season tickets, so we're big soccer fans out here. And uh, so we, we uh, go to those games every every week. How's the ski season so far? Uh, the ski season has been poorer than in times past. We haven't had a lot of snow, but it's uh, it's still you're still 30 minutes away. I can leave work, and uh, 45 minutes later, I'm on a ski lift and uh, and about ready to go down uh, go downhill. So oh it's pretty goodness. special. Yeah, it's pretty special. It's it's much different to when I lived out east when I would uh, head out to Wachusett and uh, it would take <laughs> a couple of hours to get there. That's a terrible mountain covered in ice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Matt, I don't think that was what you envisioned me asking. I'm sorry. I was, ever since I remembered you were from Utah, I've been wondering that. That's I'm a good a question then. All right, Paul or Stewart, anything you wanted to ask? Go ahead, Williams. 
Uh, I'm going to go broad. Um, tell me about a recent piece of pop culture you've consumed. I just broad. finished uh, Peaky Blinders last night. Uh, the new episode of the new season of Peaky Blinders with my countryman Killian Murphy. And, uh, and I can tell you it's, it was a, a very good uh, uh, television series based in 1920s Birmingham. I have to remind you all, that's Birmingham in England, not in Alabama. Mm. <laughs> okay. and, uh, very confused. Yeah. Especially <laughs> very with Peaky different. Blinders. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Killian Murphy returns from World War I and then starts uh, kind of an illicit business, um, gun running, etc., so yeah, it's a good show. It's a good show. It's the final final season, so you should check it out. Mm. So uh, I'll stick with the uh, good old favorite. What's the the best advice that you've ever received as a learner? So as a learner, I think it's always bring people along with you. Uh, don't overwhelm them. Try and get as much them to think as much as possible uh, through mm. the cases, through the problems. Because the knowledge is there, uh, and the physiology, hopefully, uh, over the next you know half an hour, we'll be able to break down the physiology of pulmonary hypertension. It's there. It's straightforward. It's easy to understand, and, and people can rationalize it. So just bring people with you. Excellent. So, John, why don't we pretend you've been on the show many times before, and you will do Picks of the Week with us. Let's do that now. Oh, that would be great. All right. Let's cue the music, then. <laughs> okay. All right. So, John, what is your pick of the week? So I've been reading a book called Whistling Vivaldi, and this is about uh, stereotypes and the concept that you can try and break the stereotypes that you're uh, subjected to. So it's actually really interesting. So there's this uh, idea that, and it's been proven, that if women take math tests and are reminded that they're not good at math, they're not going to do as well. Similarly, if uh, if um, uh, and in contrast, if Asian women are reminded that they are good at math, they actually do better. So mm. you actually end up kind of fulfilling your stereotypes. And there's uh, then a whole host of different uh, approaches that you can take to try and defy those stereotypes and change people's impressions of you. I think it's relevant to what we do because I think with us taking care of so many residents, so many uh, medical students, and in particular the patients that we care for, I think we probably have our stereotypes that we, we, we don't uh, acknowledge. Yeah, I, I think that in the book Mindset by uh, Carol Dweck, th- she talks a little bit about that where you have these kids that they just assume they're going to be bad at math. And then yeah. when, they, when they eventually get them to flip the mindset or, they, or if they just compare the kids who just naturally have that mindset that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard and I'll, I'll eventually get this versus the kids that have the mindset, I'm not good at math. The kids that have the work hard mentality, they always just blow them out of the water, basically. So yeah, and I've been thinking. Uh, my my wife tells me that I'm no good at picking, uh, cutting grapefruit. <laughs> so and then when she reminds me of this, uh, I do a bad job cutting the grapefruit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need some better self talk when you're cutting grapefruits, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jordy, did oh, you want to give a pick of the week? Yes, I do. Oh. Have been thinking about this for a while. It's very emphatic. I've been thinking about it. So uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts, not surprising because I wrote to apply to be a curbside or correspondent. But another podcast that I listen to is called Sick Boy Podcast. And it's hosted by a tw- 30-year-old guy with cystic fibrosis who's very funny. And he hosts it with two of his best friends. And it's basically a podcast where they get anybody that's sick, whether it's from 
brain cancer, breast cancer. There's an episode on scoliosis, glaucoma, anything. And they just want to sort of get rid of stigmas and just talk about what it's like to have some sort of illness. And it's hilarious. And they want it to be hilarious so people can talk more openly. And it's, I would recommend it. it none of the medical facts are... Not, none of the medical speak is is true, and they acknowledge it. They call themselves like fake doctors. Um, so it's not informational in the slightest, but it's sort of a it's it's nice to listen to after a long day and just hear people shoot the shit about something that you take very seriously. It's a different approach. It's really great. Sounds like every day at work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> except I would hope that your colleagues are more correct than these guys. Ah! Stuart, did you have a pick of the yes. week? Oh, yes. I have a, a wonderful one. It's uh, Jean-Claude Van Johnson. Have you guys, uh, have yes. you guys seen this one yet? Yes, it's awesome. No. Oh, it's, it's an absolutely wonderful piece of artwork. <laughs> on, uh, it's on Amazon Prime, right? Yeah. So anyways, it, it, so have you ever wondered why Jean-Claude Van Damme's movies suck? Well, uh, I don't kind know of what like, you're talking about, Stuart, but go oh, on. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I apologize. So this blows away the mystique because actually Jean-Claude Van, Van Damme is actually an international spy. And so this – and this explains why he went to all his uh, – you know, did all – like what was it? Bloodsport? He did, did, there's an amazing movie, right? Anyways, so uh, it's, it's very much tongue-in-cheek, but the, the, the quality of the humor, at least from my perspective, I think is, is just groundbreaking. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I can't believe it. The fact that Matt and I have seen something that you haven't. Well, Paul. Yeah, somehow that was not on my must-watch list. <clears throat> okay, Paul. You, how about a pick of the week for you, Paul? I did it. I made it through you a year it. watching movies. So I, not 360. Congratulations. 210 can, new movies I saw this can year. Can you do like a, 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 a sound bit of like people clapping in the background for him? <laughs> Please don't do that. So... The, the movie I saw to finish off the year, I absolutely hated. Um, so I'm not, that is not my pick of the week. But you know, the one before that, I, I watched a scrappy little movie, weirdly enough, starring Killian Murphy um, in war called Dunkirk. So I'm sure you've all heard of it, but if you've not had a chance to see it, it's a rightful contender for Best Picture. It's one of Christopher Nolan's most recent movies. It's a triptych set during World War II. The whole thing is just beautifully put together, beautifully shot, really compelling. And for Christopher Nolan, actually a really tight, um, succinct movie. So it, if you've not had a chance to see Dunkirk yet, go ahead and watch it because it is it lives up to his type. Because uh, Christopher Nolan has a tight movie. Yeah, well, as opposed to like Interstellar, which was like four and a half hours long, and even though it was it was fine, it was just I, I was just praying for death by the end of it. <laughs> I thought the casting the casting was really neat in it, Paul. Uh, Killian uh, Murphy, as he said, and also Harry Styles, because I felt anytime you'd see Killian, you're reminded, oh yeah, that's that's where he is, and that's where mm -hmm. Harry Styles is, and so it's a really slick way of using recognizable faces to to kind of get you back to the storyline. I've actually been wanting to see this movie. Yeah, it's it's absolutely worth a watch. Okay, I'm not going to give a pick okay. of the week. <laughs> I'm not going to give Perfect. a pick of the week today, and uh, I think we should move into the topic at hand, which is pulmonary hypertension. Excellent. So I'll give a quick case. This is uh, one of our favorite patients from Cashlack Memorial Hospital, Mrs. R. And she's been on previous episodes, but she's a 75-year-old lady. She has obesity with a BMI of 32, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. She's on Coumadin for her AFib. She has sleep apnea. And of course, she's non-compliant with her CPAP. She's coming in with uh, shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion, and fatigue. And she thinks this is all caused by asthma. 
Her resting sats are 92% on room air. Her blood pressure is 138 over 84. And uh, as I was mentioning before, when the audio was not good, uh, this was wildly hypertensive by the new ACC AHA guidelines. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, you're not, you don't really care about her blood pressure today because you're focusing on this shortness of breath and fatigue, and uh, you suspect pulmonary hypertension. So, John, my question for you, when, when you are explaining or defining pulmonary hypertension to like a patient, how do you, how do you explain that to them, what it is and uh, how they can think about it? Sure. So I, com- I use a freeway analogy. So I like to say that the, the blood vessels in your lungs should be like a freeway. There should be four lanes, all the blood flow going through, all pretty easily, fairly straightforward. In pulmonary hypertension, regardless of the cause, you go from having four lanes down to one lane. The vessels have gotten narrower, the walls have gotten thicker, and now you just have a real uh, one lane for all the blood flow to go mm-hmm. through. In that setting, and in particular when you're at rest, that might actually be okay. Uh, but when you try to exert yourself, I don't like to use the word exercise because many of these people can't even exercise. But when you try and exert yourself, you're, it's like rush hour. You just can't get enough blood flow through your lungs because you're uh, confined down to that one lane. So that's how I explain it to patients. The way I explain it to, to residents and house staff is I compare it to troponin release. I think when you have a troponin in your ER, even if it's for something such as a UTI and someone measures a troponin and it's 0.08, that is abnormal. When you have someone with pulmonary hypertension, you get an echo and there's pulmonary hypertension there. That is abnormal and you need to figure out why it's, why it's there. Excellent. Yeah, I, I might have to steal some of these explanations, but that, that's what the show's about. So permission to steal uh, your, your explanations there. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Knock, <laughs> knock yourself out. Okay. The the groupings of pulmonary hypertension are also something that I just wanted to kind of get frame up front for people. Can you just kind of broadly go over how you yeah. how you explain those to to residents or to students? And re- re- real quick, because uh, we were talking about this in the, during the pre recording, if you could also explain your position on on using the terminology primary and secondary pulmonary sure. hypertension. Thanks for bringing that up. I think the grouping is really overwhelming. And it's tested a lot, uh, but from a clinical perspective, it was never designed for clinical use. The grouping, there are five groups, and we'll go over it very quickly, but the real thing I want to talk about is the cause. So there are five groups. Group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension. Group two is pulmonary hypertension from left-sided heart disease. Group three is pulmonary hypertension from chronic lung disease. Group four is chronic blood clots. And then group five is the miscellaneous stuff that, that, I, that we rarely see, sarcoidosis, histiocytosis X, et cetera. But the grouping was actually created from a pathological classification system. It was never intended to be therapeutic. The real uh, focus that when people have uh, referrals for pulmonary hypertension or they get an echo and they see pulmonary hypertension, the real focus should be what is the cause? As I said, similar to when you have a troponin release, what is the cause of troponin release? Is it an anstemi? Is it STEMI? Is it myocardial demand? When you have pulmonary hypertension, what is the cause? And the best way, the way I think about it, and the way I talk to our house staff about it is 60% of the time is due to left side of heart disease. That's systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, valvular heart disease, or something rarer like amyloid. So 60% of the time. The next 20% of the time, it's due to chronic hypoxic lung disease. That's your COPD, emphysema, uh, 
pulmonary fibrosis, but probably more importantly uh, in North America, obstructive sleep apnea and obesity hyperventilation syndrome. The next 10%, so 60% left side of heart disease, 20% chronic hypoxic lung disease, the next 10% is a combination of the both. And you see these all the time, people who are overweight with diastolic dysfunction and obstructive sleep apnea. So 90% of pulmonary hypertension, and this is in several different registries, several different data sets, 90% of pulmonary hypertension due to left side of heart disease, chronic hypoxic lung disease, or a combination of the two. What I don't like is uh, when people refer to primary pulmonary hypertension and secondary pulmonary hypertension, because that suggests that pul the pulmonary hypertension has come out of the blue uh, when that's really not the case. Something has triggered the pulmonary hypertension. There is something going on that's raised, that's caused these pressures in the lungs to become increased. That may be the 90% we just touched on, or it can be the final 10%, which what I refer to as pulmonary vascular disease. That's pulmonary arterial hypertension or chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. That's the final 10%. So that's how I break it down. And when I see someone that comes into me with, in clinic, I'm trying to figure out, are they part of the 60%, 20%, 10%, uh, with combination, or are they, or are they the rarer pulmonary vascular disease? And that's that's kind of going to be the focus of the episode. So that's a great setup. Is sort of where do we go from here with Mrs. R to try to start figuring out like on our history, our exam, our our lab testing. So we can start with what what do you ask the patient when you're talking to them, John? What would you what more would you want to know from her? Sure. So when someone's referred to me for pulmonary hypertension, the first first couple of questions I ask is, can you walk as far as you want? And yes or no. And then you ask, uh, how far can you walk? A lot of the time they'll say, oh, I can walk on the flat just fine. But then when I try and walk up a hill, I get shorter breath. Or when I walk up a flight of stairs, I get shorter breath. That's diastolic dysfunction. That's heart failure preserved ejection fraction, that uh, when you walk up a hill, you're getting shorter breath. People with pulmonary arterial hypertension, they're shorter breath walking on the flat. So that's the first thing I ask. The next thing I ask is, how long have you been? Uh, uh, specifically, I ask, when were you last quite well? When were you last 100%? Hmm. If they say, listen, it was you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that's not pulmonary arterial hypertension. Again, that's probably diastolic dysfunction, that there's been this gradual development of increased worsening symptoms. If they say, listen, a year ago, I was just fine. Uh, I had, you know, had a good holiday last year, and now I'm back this year, and I, I can't do much of anything. That, that's an aggressive course, and that's pulmonary vascular disease from pulmonary arterial hypertension or from blood clots. Mm. Uh, then I ask about syncope. Uh, syncope is always a red flag, regardless of the cause of your pulmonary hypertension. If you're passing out, uh, that's not a good sign. And then I ask about angina, because, again, angina then is a poor prognostic indicator, again, regardless of the cause of pulmonary hypertension. On this, on, on this first visit, what sort of testing would you, or actually on the physical exam, before we get to testing, uh, I'm ignoring physical exam like that, you know, that's, that's, uh, the great training I received, uh, there in medical school, John. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, just, just kidding. John, John was a chief resident when I was a medical student. So I'm, I'm just joking with him. Uh, John, so what, what sort of physical exam things should we look out for with pulmonary hypertension? Sure. Uh, and Watto, Watto broke me, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, on phys, uh, so on physical exam, I think there are two things uh, that you focus on. One is physical exam signs of pulmonary hypertension, and the other is physical exam signs of right heart failure. 
So the physical exam finds findings of pulmonary hypertension, elevated pressures in the lungs, are a palpable P2, and right ventricular heave, and a loud P2. So the palpable P2 you feel about in the third left intercostal space, if you can feel the valve closing, that's a sign that the mean PA pressures are somewhere between 40 and 50. Uh, you have to make sure it's not your own pulse that you're feeling when you do that. Uh, the right ventricular heave you feel to the left of the sternal border. And then the loud P2. The loud P2 is important and probably more sensitive than the palpable P2. The loud P2 is when you auscult for the second heart sound, you should only hear P2 in the pulmonary position. You shouldn't hear it in the PMI or the apex of the heart, and you should not hear it in the aortic valve area. So this is one of those things. I have medical students with me. I get them to auscult, and I say, this lady has a loud P2. And they're, don't they? And they're like, yes, Dr. Ryan. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, then I say, well, how do you know it's loud? And they say, well, you told me. Uh, but <laughs> if you can hear the P2 in the aortic valve position, or if you can hear the P2 in the mitral valve position or the PMI or the apex of the heart, then by definition, it's a loud P2. Okay. The signs of right heart failure then, the signs of right heart failure, are these are, you know this, this is the congestion. Uh, elevated JVP, uh, ascites, enlarged liver, peripheral edema. Those are the signs of right heart failure. So those are the two main things that I look for. A couple of other subtle things I look for. I look for clubbing. Uh, as you guys know, it can be a sign of cyanosis. It can be a sign of congenital heart disease. And then I also look at the hands for signs of Raynaud's because so many people have a history of either undiagnosed or scleroderma, lupus, etc. So you can look in the peripheries to see if there's any signs of Raynaud's. And those are the, the exam features that I look for. Okay. That actually segues pretty nicely. So you mentioned that the possibility of Raynaud's, which sort of raises the uh, what kind of test you would actually start on the initial work of someone that you suspect pulmonary hypertension. So can you sort of talk us through your algorithm? Because I've seen... What feels like a shotgun approach where we're left heart casting and doing VQ scanning and sending off every autoimmune uh, serology known to man. <laughs> um, and then I've also seen a more selective approach. How do you go through when you suspect someone may have pulmonary hypertension? Sure. So I actually follow the European guidelines. So the 2015 European guidelines diagnostic workup is really slick and is really valuable. So you come back to the fact that, again, I said that 90% of people have left-sided heart disease, chronic lung disease, or a combination of the two. So that's where I start with the diagnostic workup. I do an EKG, uh, pulmonary function test with spirometry, uh, a chest x-ray. If uh, Unless the PFTs are very abnormal, then I'll do a CT scan. And, uh, and I do not do an and overnight oximetry. I'll, again, looking for obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. Uh, sometimes an ABG if I'm very concerned about obesity hyperventilation syndrome. But that's where I start. And that's what the European guidelines actually suggest doing as well. And then if you find that people have, um, uh, if, you, if you do that and you find the diagnosis, then you're done. Uh, you, and looking at the echo carefully make, to have a good look at features of diastolic dysfunction. But if you find that, then you're done. If you do that workup and you don't find uh, a pathology, or if you do that workup and they're just so, so sick and really, you know, functional class three or functional class four, then you kind of go down and do uh, more advanced testing. But you're right. Uh, to your point, Paul, um, I think you do not need an exhaustive workup up front because uh, you can address 90% of the causes with the routine workup that you do for shortness of breath. And that's what the guidelines say, too. So you said overnight pulse oximetry. Why not polysomnography? Uh, so as, as opposed to a sleep, as opposed to right, right, right. going to a sleep study. Yeah. 
Sure. I think uh, mostly just because of timing. Uh, if you do an overnight oximetry, as you know, most sleep centers, there's a delay in getting people in. Uh, there's a delay in getting testing done. Uh, so if you do an overnight oximetry and it comes back with low, uh, you know, less than 90% for several hours, you can get someone on oxygen and refer them to a sleep study, at the, a sleep center at the same time. So, so how, how do you, do you send them home with like a, a, a continuous recorder or how does oh, that sure. work out? Okay. So you put in an order for overnight oximetry and then uh, connect with the company and yeah. typically they will then ship out a pulse oximeter that will go to their house and gotcha. then they wear it overnight and then they mail it back to the company it's, and then it, you get it, the report to your office. It's interesting. In the, in the system that I work in, it's actually much easier to get an in-home sleep study than it is to get oh. an overnight pulse oximetry. But sure. That's the reason why I was asking. Yeah. So I find at least in Utah, we find that there are so many primary care providers who are in rural communities who don't have access to different gotcha, testing gotcha. and so on. Makes sense. That, uh, that, that, that's uh, why we coordinate that way. Yeah, I've been I've been spoiled living next <laughs> to large cities. So, yeah. John, I wanted to to dig in a little bit on the echo findings. I I feel like a lot of students and residents uh, have have difficulty reading echoes and. When and and I have difficulty looking at like an echo and saying what kind of pulmonary hypertension is where what is the primary cause of this pulmonary hypertension? So I think it would be helpful to talk about that, and if you could throw in maybe some values that you think are important there. Sure. Uh, thank you for asking. So when you look at the echo, there are a couple of key features, um, and this has actually been used in a predictive score. Uh, to try and characterize the difference between pulmonary arterial hypertension, group one, and pulmonary hypertension from HEFPEF, group two, heart failure preserved ejection fraction. And the key features are the following. If there's evidence of left atrial enlargement, if there's evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy, then in all likelihood, you can say with 94% confidence, which is crazy, right? 94% <laughs> yeah. confidence that this is uh, pulmonary hypertension from Group two, heart failure preserved ejection fraction. Now, uh, if there, the presence, one of the things that's hard is whether or not people report diastolic dysfunction, right? Mm. Uh, in the TopCat trial, about a quarter of patients actually didn't have diastolic dysfunction on their echo because diastolic dysfunction can come and go. It can vary based on blood pressure and volume and so on. But the presence of left atrial enlargement and left ventricular hypertrophy are really predictive of group 2 pulmonary hypertension. And then what we do, at least, and what, what, what should be done, is you should complement that with the clinical features. So like your lady here, like Mrs. R, so she has hypertension, hyperlipidemia, she has obstructive sleep apnea. She has atrial fibrillation, and uh, and she has a high BMI, right? So she's overweight. So those features bring you again mm. into like the ninety four percent accuracy that she has pulmonary hypertension from heart failure preserved ejection fraction. That's been published in in several different studies, which we can uh, hopefully provide links with to the show, and. And I think in that setting, I think we have a lot of tests, right? We've got tests that we do that are 94% accurate, and we, we take them for granted. CTPAs for pulmonary, for pulmonary embolism and so on. And this is actually a way of being in your clinic, seeing someone with pulmonary hypertension, and being confident to 94% what their cause is uh, without doing, uh, Paul, to your point, without having to do a right and left heart cath. Jordy, did you have a question? Yeah, um, that answered a lot of what I was wondering, but I came across different calculators like the transpulmonary gradient and the diastolic pulmonary gradient. I was sure. wondering if you could talk about those and of how useful they are in clinical practice. 
Sure. Thanks, Jordi. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. So the transpulmonary gradient is the difference between the mean PA pressure and the wedge pressure. So if the mean PA pressure, the normal mean PA pressure, presumably all of us have is 15. If the mean PA pressure is 30, if the wedge is 12, that's a transpulmonary gradient of 18. And, uh, and that's, that's increased. Normally it should be about 12. Mm. The diastolic pressure gradient is the difference between the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure and the wedge pressure. Uh, so, you know, if the mean PA pressure is 40, that means the PA pressure might be 60 over 30. And uh, so the diastolic pressure of 30 minus the wedge of, say, 12. And now you have another uh, way of measuring uh, pulmonary vascular resistance, essentially. <laughs> so people ask about this, but it's a really moving target. I don't use them, Jordy. Uh, and the reason I don't use them uh, are a few. One in particular is no one was ever enrolled in a clinical trial based on diastolic pressure gradients. No one was ever enrolled in a clinical trial based on transpulmonary gradient. So none of the therapies that we've ever studied have ever been targeted to those parameters. So it's therefore hard for me to use those parameters for either diagnosis or for decision-making because I don't have data to support doing that. Uh, secondly, uh, as I said, it, oftentimes it's a moving target and there's kind of a uh, you know, it ends up being a popular one. Let's for the next couple of years, let's really emphasize diastolic pressure gradient. And then someone comes out and shows that it's not that accurate or there's variability, there's age-related changes and so on. So I like to stick to the classics, stick to what we know, and that's mean PA pressure greater than 25 or pulmonary vascular resistance greater than three. John, when you and I had talked bef before we, we were recording, you had mentioned that uh, all animals have a mean PA pressure of 15, which I thought was very interesting. And then you, you were also mentioning sure. sort of how uh, the mean PA pressure can't be directly measured by an echo. It's sort of estimated. Can you talk to speak right. to that a little bit? Like, sure. what, how Still should we question. think about that? Sure. So every species in the animal kingdom, every land-living species in the animal kingdom has a mean PA pressure of 15. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so rats have a mean PA pressure of 15. And giraffes have a mean PA pressure of 15, and humans do. I mean, that's nuts. <laughs> the, the systemic blood pressure of giraffes is much higher because they've got to get all the blood flow to the neck, to the head. Uh, but their mean PA pressure is 15. Naturally. Yeah. So, so in that regard, there's something physiologically normal about a mean PA pressure of 15. That is what is normal for land-living species. Now, um, and actually, what's been shown has been once your mean PA pressure goes over 18, once your mean PA pressure is greater than 18, there is a mortality effect of that. Something abnormal is going on. And this has been done based on the VA database. That Now, the cutoff, as we mentioned, was a mean PA pressure of greater than 25. But people have a mean PA pressure of 18, 19, 20, 22. That is not normal. There is some sort of pathology going on that is going to shorten that person's life expectancy, and that uh, should be treated. And uh, it can be cases such as Mrs. R, obstructive sleep apnea, uh, hypertension, hyper, um, diastolic dysfunction, etc. But something is going on that's raising those PA pressures. The, the struggle uh, is that we've, we've based it on mean PA pressure of 25 as the cutoff, but our echoes, um, as Stuart and Matt were referring to, were uh, measures right ventricular systolic pressure. Mm -hmm. an estimate of pulmonary artery systolic pressure. And the cutoff we use is 35. That's the cutoff we use for high is 35. Mm -hmm. That's based on the fact that if your right ventricular systolic pressure is 35, your mean PA pressure is probably going to be greater than 25. Just because if your RVSP 
right ventricular systolic pressure is 35. Your diastolic pressure is probably 10 to 15. Your mean PA pressure is going to end up being around 25. But it's an, again, it's an estimate. But if you have right ventricular systolic pressure of 35, 36, that is not normal. If you were to echo the, the five of us, hopefully our right ventricular systolic pressure would come back 20 to 24, somewhere along those lines. It would be much, much lower. How well does uh, transthoracic echo uh, RVSB correlate with right heart cath findings in general? Like, is it something that, that, that I can hang my hat on or do I need to follow it up? Sure. Um, I, I've had several echo uh, just recently uh, with uh, RVSPs like 35 to 40. Uh, right heart cath was, you know, pulmonary capillary wedge pressures like 10 to 15. And, you know, it, it just has, didn't, didn't well, correlate the- well. But, but do you remember what the mean PA pressure was on those? Oh, no, I, I don't off the top of my head. I, I think it was like 25 to 30. The echo is very good at capturing pulmonary hypertension. The echo itself is accurate to about 10, to about 10 millimeters of mercury. Okay. So 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. So if you get an echo and the right ventricular systolic pressure is 45, it's probably somewhere between 35 and 55. It's, okay. But it's still high. It's still high. So it's, it's still elevated. Uh, if your PA pressure on echo is 100, it's probably somewhere between 80 and 120. <laughs> right, it's still right. wicked high. Uh, if the pressures come back as normal, uh, then it, they probably are normal with some caveats. One is that it was measured properly, which hopefully is the case. Yeah. <laughs> this, the second cool. is you got to look at the company it keeps. You will see one of the toughest things, Stuart, you will see is that people will do an echo and they'll say, insufficient tricuspid regurgitation jet right. to measure right ventricular systolic pressure. Right. So what we do in, in those circumstances, we look at the company it keeps. We look, is the right atrium big? Is the right ventricle big? If the right yeah. atrium and the right ventricle are a normal size and yeah. there's not enough TR, then they probably don't have pulmonary hypertension. Yeah. If the right atrium is big and the right ventricle is big and the person has scleroderma or lupus or some sort of high-risk features or obstructive sleep apnea, then they probably do have pulmonary hypertension. So I don't, we don't uh, hang our hats on it. Uh, but it's again, it's all kind of the company it keeps. Yeah, the, the the case I'm thinking of, there was no right atrial enlargement, no right ventricular hypertrophy. Um, but th- there was actually three echoes performed at three different locations with RVSP that ranged anywhere from 35 to 40. It was 35, 38, and 40 were the were the, the three um, uh, numbers, and then follow up with right heart cath, which was inconsistent. And sure. I mean, it, it was, but it re- repeated echoes every single time, 35 yeah. to 40. Again, oftentimes, if there's enough risk factors, if I have someone who is very short of breath, you do a six-minute walk test, for example, and they go hypoxic, and they don't go very far, and the echo isn't definitive, I think doing a right heart cath just to get that diagnosis, I think that's that's a reason. Right, right. and that's exactly why it was pursued. I'll open the, the floor to questions here. Does anyone have a specific spot they want to take this to? I actually want to go back a little bit. How do you explain the pathophysiology of what's going on to patients or dense medical students or people who are interviewing you when you're, when you're explaining pulmonary hypertension and why it makes them short of breath? How do, how do you explain that? So people typically get short of breath when they try and exert themselves. And when they try and exert themselves, they're trying to get more blood flow t- through their lungs to increase the oxygen, to get more oxygen to, uh, their, to, their, to their systemic circulation. So if you uh, start walking up a hill, uh, or start lifting something up and you need 
extra blood flow to your systemic circulation to try and uh, increase oxygen supply, you are going to obviously need to get more blood flow to the lungs. However, the lungs are, uh, the lung blood vessels are narrowed, so they can't get the extra blood flow to the lungs to be oxygenated. Uh, So therefore, because you're not able to get that blood flow to the lungs to pick up oxygen, when you're trying to exert yourself, you get more short of breath. John, along those same lines, can you explain why uh, we had talked about for patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension who are on who are on therapy when they come into the hospital and their blood pressure is low and they call you and ask you if you should continue their medications or not? Um, can you give us some counsel what to do there? So it's a mess, guys. It's it, it's a real mess, and I get asked this all the time. We have people who are who have pulmonary arterial hypertension, and they're on sildenafil, uh, endothelial receptor antagonists, and they're hypotensive. Maybe they've got urosepsis or something along those lines. And people are saying, we need to stop the medicines. So PAH-specific therapies do not cause systemic vasodilatation. They don't cause systemic hypotension. In the clinical trials, in the sildenafil clinical trial, out of 300, 325 patients, one person got postural hypotension, one. Uh, so, and that person actually was on a much higher dose than what we use for uh, in, in clinical practice. And actually, if you stop the medicines, if you stop their pH-specific therapies, you're actually at high risk of causing hypotension. You're actually at risk of causing systemic hypotension. Because if you stop their pH-specific therapies, their PA pressures are going to go high, their cardiac output is going to go down, their stroke volume is going to go down, as you know, the stroke volume in the right ventricle is the same as the stroke volume in the left ventricle. So their left ventricular stroke volume is going to go down and their pressures are going to drop. So please, in the circumstance where someone has pulmonary arterial hypertension, we would recommend not stopping the medicines because of systemic hypotension because it would probably make the systemic hypotension worse. Love it. Uh, that's, that's some great, great physiology there. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. Of course. I want to I want to move into some of the some of the specific therapies here um and just kind of a broad overview so you mentioned that 90% of people are going to have some combination of of uh group 2 group 3 which is the left-sided heart failure or chronic lung disease so what those patients we just treating the underlying disease I imagine but are there any specific pitfalls to to therapy or any specific other therapies we should think about in these patients so it's really hard because obviously everyone says diastolic dysfunction. There's no treatment for diastolic dysfunction, right? There's no treatment for heart failure, preserved ejection fraction. And, uh, and that, I think, is a bit, uh, it's a bit extreme. There's no pharmacological treatment. There's no known pharmacological treatment for uh, heart failure, preserved ejection fraction. But there's treatment. And the treatment is, as you alluded to, Matt, is controlling the risk factors. Uh, so that is uh, trying to get them to exercise. This, again, is why I get back to the angina. So remember I mentioned that you ask angina in the initial uh, questions. So chronic stable angina is uh, an approved recommendation for cardiac rehab. Mm. The other recommendations for cardiac re- or approved indications for cardiac rehab are valvular uh, replacement, coronary artery bypass grafting, PCI, heart transplant. Um, but chronic stable angina is an indication. So if you have someone who has pulmonary hypertension from diastolic dysfunction and they've got exertional angina and uh, they may have gone a nuclear stress test and there's an abnormality there like a mild perfusion defect. That's an indication for cardiac rehab. And a lot of the time these people 
are looking for monitored exercise. They're not looking to do Orange Theory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they are looking to do some monitored exercise. And, uh, and I think that's important. Uh, so then, like case Miss R here, just really finding a way of getting them uh, to be compliant with their, to be adherent with their s s CPAP. It's really hard. And it often takes lots and lots of masks and lots of different tries. And then, uh, then finding a diuretic regimen, finding a diuretic regimen that works for them. This is incredibly individualized. If there's anything that we do well in our pH clinic, it's just working with people to find a diuretic regimen that works for them and uh, deciding, you know, it could be twice a day LASIKs. I know you've had Joel Toff on in, in the past, you know, discussing different diuretic or LASIKs regimens. It could be twice a day LASIKs. It could be once a day. It could be adding on amelioride, adding on spironolactone. Uh, we use spironolactone quite a bit. The TopCat trial, large trial of heart failure preserved ejection fraction, uh, I think 3,500 patients, uh, ultimately a, a negative study or a neutral study. Uh, but in some certain patient populations, there's probably potential benefit. And what we do actually is we enter into kind of a, a clinical uh, agreement with people that we see people come in. We do a six-minute walk test. So this, this is what we do. Someone has group two, group three pulmonary hypertension. We come in, they, we do... We record their functional class. We actually do a six-minute walk test to get a sense of objectively how much they can do, and we do an echo. And then we say, here's what we're going to do for the next 12 weeks. So we're going to try some spiral, keep a real close eye on your uh, kidney function and your potassium. We're going to try on some overnight oximetry if the nocturnal, uh, if the pulse oximeter comes back normal, comes back abnormal. And we're going to get you on an ACE inhibitor for your blood pressure. And you're going to exercise. You're going to walk, you know, for one hour a day or 30 minutes a day or something along those lines. And then 12 weeks later, we get them back and we do, so this is what we do. And then we, so we do a functional class again, echocardiogram again, and six minute walk test again. And if there's been improvement, we feel pretty good about that. If there hasn't been an improvement in those three components, then we say, all right, what are the next steps? Are we now talking about going towards right heart cath? It sounded like uh, spironolactone is your first line diuretic then in, uh, over Lasix so, no, or furosemide? Yeah, so I think people need, uh, typically I find people need a loop diuretic and they end up needing potassium, right? Mm -hmm. And so in lieu of giving potassium, uh, we see if people can tolerate spironolactone instead. So now you've given, you're still added on two medications, but you hope that both of those medications have uh, resulted in some uh, symptomatic benefit. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about point at which we'd refer versus, you know, starting a patient on an ACE diuretic, whatnot, sure. in our own. So refer on for pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, just refer to a specialized clinic. Sure. So I think uh, there are a couple of key features. One, if they're having syncope, refer them on. Uh, if they're functional class three or four, refer them on. Um, if you're, if you feel really just uncomfortable with them. If you've got them in front of you and you just, you know, they just look really sick or you, they're not overweight, they're 20 years of age, they've got lupus, they've, you know, they've really been previously just fine and you're just really worried that uh, this is really aggressive and you're not, not sure what's going on, those people I think should be referred on. 
similarly, if you do a diagnostic workup, if you do the PFTs, chest X-ray, you know, overnight oximetry, and you find nothing except, say, still a big right ventricle, still other PA pressures, and a decrease in the diffusion capacity, the DLCO, if you find those, then just send them on, and you're really scratching your head. You don't know why this person has pulmonary hypertension. Then refer them on, and uh, and then, or if you feel that they have real PAH risk factors, which we hadn't touched on previously. But these are the things like uh, lupus and scleroderma are the two big ones. HIV, uh, fenfen use, a diet pill that uh, you may or may not have come across before. It was popular uh, in Utah. Uh, methamphetamine use, also popular in Utah. <laughs> uh, schistosomiasis. This is the, you, like, uh, you like this, George. Commas cause of pulmonary hypertension worldwide. I actually had written that down in my pre-show notes. Yeah, it's schistosomiasis. Wow. Not Did crazy. not know that one. Yeah, I was going to ask if go. that was popular in Utah, too. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, it actually can, uh, for people who are returning uh, LDS missionaries, it can be. So people have spent, you know, long amounts of time in, a, in an endemic area. Yeah. And Seriously. then congenital heart disease. For example, if they have a history of... Uh, atrial septal defect, ventricular septal defect. Those ones, Jordy, I think should be referred on. But ultimately, listen, most people who do pulmonary hypertension, we do it because we like it and, uh, and we find it interesting and we think we're good at it. Uh, so most people are very happy to have someone referred on. And in reality, if you have someone and you just want a second set of eyes, and if then we call you and say, listen, this person's there, BMI is 38, uh, their you know, overnight oximetry is, is, is in their boots. Um, you know, they need to start losing weight. They need to get control of their blood pressure and they need to get control of their uh, sleep apnea. Then I think uh, primary care providers can feel pretty good about that and kind of have a plan going forward. They don't necessarily need to continue to follow on in a pulmonary hypertension center. But I think getting a second set of eyes is always useful. It's kind of funny. I was reviewing the, uh, that's a great answer, by the way, but I was, I was reviewing the European Society guidelines um, and they, they have, great algorithms, like you said, and one of them, just all the arrows, it gets a little bit tortuous, but all the arrows eventually end up going to referral, <laughs> which I kind of end up doing anyway, but I, I yeah. kind of enjoyed having to get to the process. No, and I think we're, you know, we, uh, you know, in, in the PH community, people are kind, people want to do this, they, they want to help, and uh, yeah, as I said, even if they particularly want to help, you know, when, when someone's, cr- you know, crashing and burning and not doing well and struggling in, in a primary care provider's clinic. And, uh, but even if you can just answer some questions, I think that's really helpful. And John, we're going to put together uh, an algorithm based on the talk we did here uh, to put in our show notes for the audience. But I, I want to make sure we don't, we don't miss anything that's in the, the European Society algorithm. So they mentioned VQ scanning and oh, yeah. uh, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which they which is CTEF. Is that is that how is that the cool thing to call it these days? Sure, there's CTEF and then there's CTED as well. C Ted, okay. C Ted is uh, chronic thromboembolic disease. Okay, okay. So you may not have pulmonary hypertension, but you have chronic PEs. So by the time you're you're worried about C Ted, they should be referred on for um, to a pulmonary hypertension center. And the reasons are a few. The VQ scans are like any test. You need people who are well-trained. You need techs who are experienced doing large numbers of them and people who can interpret them. And so they're really, they're such a nuanced test at this stage that they're really best done at the same time as your pH evaluation. So I don't think 
this is my opinion. I don't think primary care providers need to refer for VQ scans mm-hmm. unless there's some other, you know, unless they're, you know, they're worried about PE and they can't do, you know, a CTPA. But I think in terms of the pulmonary hypertension workup, I think that should be sent on because most pH centers mm-hmm. will end up repeating it. Uh, because they will want their own, because it's the diagnosis you don't want to miss. Mm, and the reason yeah. you don't want to miss it is because it is curable. And it's the only curable form of pulmonary hypertension. The only curable form of pulmonary hypertension is CTEF, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, and is cured with surgery, a pulmonary endarterectomy. The rest of them, the treatments help, they improve symptoms, they, they maybe improve uh, mortality, but they don't cure. Uh, so, so that's why it's important to treat the only cure, to not miss the only curable form of pulmonary hypertension, which is CTEF. I think Matt, you had originally asked about mortality. I'm not sure we covered that. Yeah. Bring it back to the case if we want. It was a cute anecdote. Yeah. So Mrs. Yeah. So my, in, in, in the case as written, uh, Mrs. R, she has a, uh, she has a wedding she'd like to make in a couple years here, John. So I know you're going to give her good information. Give her good news. 2023. Yeah. Yeah. 2023, John, is she going to make it? So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if, she, if she's going to make it. The untreated uh, life expectancy of pulmonary hypertension, untreated, untreated life expectancy of pulmonary hypertension is three to five years. The heart, the right heart essentially tires out. At some point in time, the right heart tires out. Now, uh, so it's three to five years. There are some forms which are worse than others. So let me let me uh, let me put this to, to you, so Jordy. So so which forms of pulmonary hypertension? We have our groups, right? Group one, pulmonary arterial. Group two, left side of heart disease. Group three, chronic hypoxic lung disease. And group four, CTEF. Which form? Which one of them has the worst prognosis? So I'm glad you asked me that because I had thought it was group one, but then I was reviewing the notes that you sent over, and I saw and I saw that it was group two. So the worst prognosis is actually group three. So, oh. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's like yeah. Note three you off. Hold on, hold on. I will say that, okay, I'm going to just dig myself out of the hole here. I confuse. <laughs> the groups are confusing. The group groups are confusing. <laughs> I want to put it out there. So you I meant to say know. chronic lung disease. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that is what I meant to say. Yeah. No, I, uh, and this is why we don't yeah. use the radio groups. gold. <laughs> so... The, the worst in, in the modern era, in 2017, the worst prognosis is chronic hypoxic lung disease. When I had the misfortune of training mass, uh, <laughs> I would uh, similarly have said exactly what you said, Jordy, that pulmonary arterial hypertension has the worst prognosis. And actually, when, when I was in my training, people would say, you know, thank goodness you don't have group 1 PAH, because that's, that's the one you don't want to have. Uh, but now in 2017, it's it's group three. It's chronic hypoxic lung disease, and and why is that the case? I think uh, it's a few reasons. One is, as Matt alluded to, CPAP is hard to be adherent with. It's hard to treat obstructive sleep apnea. It's hard to treat obesity. It's hard to treat obesity hyperventilation syndrome. Up until a few years back, we had no treatments for pulmonary fibrosis. Right, we've only gotten them in the last couple of years. And then the treatments for uh, COPD and emphysema are just, you know, limited as well in terms of their efficacy. The other reason, however, and this is my opinion, the other reason I think the prognosis in group three pulmonary hypertension is so bad is because we give people PAH-specific therapies. We give people sildenafil. And we give medicines that are not approved for this disease process. And I can tell you that every clinical trial of 
medicines like sildenafil of pH-specific therapy. Every clinical trial of pH-specific therapies in uh, chronic hypoxic lung disease have either been neutral or negative, namely that they've worsened clinical outcomes. So I think sometimes we hurt people, um, even though we, you know, you might say, sildenafil, let's give it to you three times a day, it'll probably help you. You know what? It probably hurts people. Wow. Can you That's talk depressing. about that more, just in the way that it would hurt someone to take it? That Sure. It sure. Uh, so I think there's probably a couple of potential ways uh, that it hurts people. Um, one is one is that people, when we go, when any of us go hiking, uh, when we go to altitude, as the oxygen levels get lower, our pulmonary arteries get smaller. That is a normal physiological response to low oxygen levels hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, right? Our vessels in our lungs get smaller as the oxygen levels go down. So and if so, if we're treating, if, so if people are chronically hypoxic and we're giving them something to dilate their blood vessels, that doesn't go with normal physiology. So again, as I said previously, every land living species has a mean pH pressure of 15. As we go up, those pressures do go up. Uh, if cows develop pulmonary hypertension, Matt, they huh. develop do you, know, do you know where cows get their swelling if they're their right heart failure? Do you know where they get it? I have no idea, but I can't, I can't wait no, to hear. <laughs> they get it in their brisket. So it's called brisket disease. So cows don't get ankle edema. Their legs are, their fascia in their ankles are so tight, they don't get ankle edema. They get uh, swelling of their brisket, which is the front part of the cow. So it's, it's referred to as brisket disease. It's, it's the main reason I never eat brisket. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so this is a normal, a normal response, uh, that as oxygen levels go down, the blood vessels get smaller. So dilating the blood vessels probably hurts people. Uh, some people get concerned about increasing VQ mismatch, Jordy, that, uh, that, uh, if there's areas of the lungs that are collapsed, for example, in COPD or one bu big bullet that you don't want, no air is going to that area, no oxygen is going to that area, so you don't want blood flow going to that area. And if you give something like sildenafil, you dilate the blood flow to that area and you increase VQ mismatch, and that probably worsens hypoxia. The other reason is probably, more, the main reason is probably more practical. You're giving a medicine that's three times a day and, uh, and on top of all their other medicines. And... Uh, and, uh, and that's problematic. I mean, we know that adding on, you know, polypharmacy uh, results in decreased adherence with the, the medicines that they should be taking that are clinically proven to be effective. And a concern that I have also is that the best pulmonary vasodilator we have is oxygen. That's the best pulmonary vasodilator. People should be taking out using oxygen. If they've got chronic hypoxic lung disease, sure, they should be on a pulmonary vasodilator. But that pulmonary vasodilator isn't sildenafil. It's oxygen. Hmm. I want to ask... Uh, final questions, Stuart, Paul, any of you guys? Nope. All right. <laughs> then, John, John, it's. Uh, I want to thank you for your time, and I want to get your take-home points. This has been a lot of fun. So uh, I... I, and I, I like that you've been making fun of me on the show, too. This, that's it's always wonderful. good. <laughs> it fits right in. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, if, if you want to, we'll see if that might may get lost in post-production. No, I don't <laughs> think so. No. No, the audience seems to like it when I get made fun of. So we'll, we'll yeah. keep it in. Uh, Should be the pull clip. Yeah. <laughs> so how about giving us some take-home points for the audience? So I think the, the two take-home points that I think are important is that 90% of pulmonary hypertension is due to left-sided heart disease, chronic hypoxic lung disease, or a combination of the two. That's one major take-home point. The other is that there is no good pulmonary hypertension. There is no uh, normal pulmonary hypertension. 
it's all bad. Sorry, but it, you know, like it's it's <laughs> it all carries a mortality. It can be treated. It can all be you know. It can be treated. It can all be treated. But doing a right heart cath, for example, and coming up with a mean peer pressure of twenty five and saying, "Listen, it's not that high. You're fine." Uh, that's a problem. Something is going on that needs to be worked up in these patients because if you ignore it, it will affect their quality of life and it will affect their length of life. John, did you want to uh, plug anything? The the guy, I understand there's some guidelines on pulmonary hypertension being updated now. When when can we expect those out? So the, the uh, Chess Society, uh, we're working on the an update to the treatment uh, of pulmonary arterial hypertension. They'll be out uh, sometime in 2018. Our, uh, uh, we're working on the manuscript at the moment. It's going very well. And uh, so hopefully uh, when that comes out, um, you guys will be uh, up to speed. And uh, if any questions come up, I'd be happy to take them. Fantastic. Thank you so much. No, this was a real treat, guys. And thank you, uh, Jordy, uh, Paul, Stewart, and Matt. This was, this was a real privilege. Yeah, it's been fun. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Quite delicious. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And please sign up for our weekly mailing list where you'll get a PDF copy of our wonderfully done show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And, uh, Jordy, you were reminding me uh, we should be asking people to subscribe to the show. Isn't that right? Yes. I have very non-validated statistics telling me that if you have more people, um, I guess, not only subscribing but writing a short review, I think I know a lot of people yeah. ask this, but it, I, I think it helps actually populate when people are searching for medical podcasts. That is correct. Um, Okay, so good. So that's good. Yeah, I, I, the, the reviews count, I believe it's like 10 to 20 to 1. So for, reviews uh, are important. Uh, yeah. Hopefully not a lot of one-star reviews, but uh, you know what? If, if you hate We've the show, one. if you hate the show, we got to hear about that too. Uh, you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Tell us Star what you, <laughs> tell us, yeah, you can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Our wonderful correspondents are putting out a lot of great content there. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, here with Jordy Kazepsky. Well, excellent. Hello, Jordy. Hello. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. Oh, hi, Paul. <laughs> I just realized I never got the opportunity to call him Jr. Ah, Paul. Yeah, Paul. I was I, I, yeah. I was going to slip a junior in there on accident once. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll just put that in as the uh, <laughs> at the as the end of the uh, show there. <laughs>